Saturday. What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcon. It's time for Falcon Screen, and we are joined by our freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Hello, hello. And Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Yo, yo. And this week we are talking our second week of the Melbourne International Film Festival. It is streaming online via Myth Play. We're covering five films. We covered several last week, covering more in the ensuing episode. There's over a hundred films I plan to watch about at least 15, 20 of them. It's been a really good run. And so far, actually, Myth has been, as Chris was saying before the podcast, solid gold. They've got a really good selection. It's been really exciting getting into these amidst lockdown. Yeah, I haven't watched a bad film yet. Admittedly, we've been a little selective in what we picked, but looking at the reviews for pretty much all the films, none of them seem to be considered generally to be a dud. Um, Yeah, it's, it's an incredible selection. And I'm enjoying this because this could be the only major film festival experience we get this year. You know, Sydney Film Festival still looks very shaky to me and they were reluctant to commit to an online festival. Here we have a really good selection of uh, art house movies of a variety of styles and some mainstream ones too, as we'll get into very soon. Yeah, to be clear, Myth for the first time has gone national. You can screen it around the country, including Sydney, where we're recording from, and the in-cinema events they are doing are in regional Victoria. Myth expanded there amidst their very successful program last year. Before we get into the Melbourne International Film Festival, just to note some of the other festivals that are screening online. Brisbane's West End Short Film Festival is screening online until the 31st of August. Filmonic is having their film night on the 25th in a week, so you can still get your flicks in. A number of film festivals have announced in the past week that they have pursued hybrid approaches and are going online. The Queer Screen Film Festival is commencing on the 18th of September. The Japanese Film Festival will be commencing a hybrid approach, both online and in person come November. And the Irish Film Festival and Sydney Underground Film Festival following the conclusion of MIFF will be screening online come September. Also coming screening online now for free is the Indian Film Festival of Melbourne screening around the country until the 30th of August. Yeah, I mean, that's a fascinating project. I mean, they have basically selected 120 films, which you can screen and watch online for free. You just need to register at ifm.com.au. And once you've registered, you can basically watch the films for free until the end of August. My highlight would be, if you haven't seen a Sajidit Ray film, it's his uh, 100 Years Bird Centenary. So they have actually picked a selection of his films. If you haven't seen a Ray film for now, you can basically watch them for free until the end of August. It's actually solid gold, as Chris just said. So two major Melbourne film festivals screening around the country right now for the first time. We're covering five films on this episode and into the podcast. First up will be Writers for Justice and Wells Hopper. And then continuing with Wife of a Spy, Days, and Night of the Kings. First up, we're covering a film that um, I absolutely loved, which is Writers of Justice. It is the new Mads Mikkelsen film, also starring Roland Moller from Land of Mine, another very prominent Danish actor. It is a Danish film. It is about it's a story. It's an Anders Thomas Janssen film. Yes. Very, very <laughs> prolific writer-director who works with Lars von Trier's Zentropa studio, who... Um, giving the, the number two punch to the number one punch of another round um, in 2020 with this film. Just keep on putting out movies that make you think, why is Hollywood not making films like this? Well, I hesitate to say so, but I'm going to, I was going to end with this, but 
I would say the same thing as regards another round. This is primed for an American remake we don't want. I can absolutely see it happening. Again, oh, with sort of Jason Sudeikis, Zach Galifianakis. Well, we, we had an, uh, another uh, Scandinavian revenge thriller, In Order of Disappearance, see a remake that I can't, I think it was called Cold Pursuit. Yeah, the Liam Neeson film. The original was great with Sky. I think that was also a Zentropa production. Yes. So yeah, Lars von Trier with his fingers all over the Danish film industry, churning out crowd-pleasing hits. I saw that. Love to see it too. Like, what was it six, seven years ago now? Which one, sorry? Um, the In Order of Disappearance. It was a yeah, yeah. great, great movie. So this film, however, I'm actually really keen to talk about this. This is about a soldier played by Nicholson who loses his wife in what appears to be a train accident. Um, his daughter survives the accident. He then seeks pursuit against those he believes responsible for the accident, uh, a, bike, a gang play, uh, called the Riders of Justice. And part and parcel on this is a number of individuals, including one who was also survived the accident and he and his friends are uh, the hackers they work in the technical space and they're not near as uh, physical or overtly um, brasque and, mm. and confident as Nicholson is it's a very odd motley crew of people not only are they technical people though they're like actuaries and statisticians and you know the like they're, they're nerds they, they talk in numbers and they uh, relate to each other in strange ways. And it, that's what one of the things I loved about this. The, all the characters, including the three quote-unquote nerds, are so well-drawn. That's right. How, how unforgettable a character is Amenthaler? Oh, good God. Uh, he needs this monitor at this time. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. He's a very strong physical presence. My favorite character is actually, I'm sorry, I forgot his name, the statistician who quantifies legality by how and what he's willing to do by how <laughs> bad the penalty is. Is it Otto? Otto, yes. Yeah, yeah. Who's, yeah. who's had like thousands of hours of therapy sessions in their fork and thinks he's qualified to be a therapist. Amazing. This sets itself up to be a classic revenge thriller and then keeps flipping the script. Uh, when I said before about how this is the sort of thing Hollywood should be making, there are some aspects of it that Hollywood would never do, um, even in an ideal world, you know, because it's very Danish. But it's classically... Hollywood or what Hollywood is supposed to be providing in that it's something you know and love with a twist, that same, same, but different thing. Um, the twists in here are not just in the plot, but in the way that it can flip tones. Um, there's an extremely good control of tone in here. So the comedy is, um, though this film is very funny at times, it's never so pronounced that the film isn't able to twist back into a more somber register and then back again. Importantly, this is a very strange mix of drama and dumb comedy, which absolutely nails it. Yeah. There's some, there's, in terms of the tone, there's amazing comedy gold, made out of something I haven't actually seen done before in film. There is the main character in this is constantly told throughout that people get him and understand what he's going through. His response is always, I lost a partner. No, you don't. And I think what this, this film does is it has the maturity to recognize not just forms of grief, but forms of grief distinct to particular types of losses and that experience, which I myself have experienced where people tell you, oh, that we, we get this. Um, it can be both frustrating and empathetic. And I think this film shows this character both appreciating those sorts of um, encounters, but also detesting them and some real comedy gold being mined from, mm. no, what, what do you think you're saying to me? And then there's another character who was revealed later suffers a particular 
type of loss themselves. And um, it, it doesn't deal with grief in an abstract way. It talks about grief in terms of anger. It talks about grief as physical. Grief is physical. It talks about grief in terms of this feeling of what it's a blame. It talks about grief in terms of randomness, something so mm. important to internalize. And actually, randomness is one of and causality is one of the fascinating aspects of this film for me. That's right. I really like how this film explores this idea of fate and chance, causality, and you know, questions, philosophical um, directions to it, or it, whether there's a presence of God. And it does all of this without ever speechifying to you. Because it's a mainstream revenge thriller type film, I have the immediate reference points for this uh, Hollywood type things. I was thinking of, no, even though it's not that similar, the most recent film I've seen that's kind of similar. So I was thinking of nobody when I watched this. I just thought um, the American equivalents are afraid to take themselves seriously right now. Like you can't have this kind of balance of tones. And if they do decide that they, they want to be about something or have a message, they do it really like a sledgehammer to the face. Um, you know, the speechifying, the dropping of, um, this is what the theme of the film is kind of moment. Whereas anything that comes close to that in here is organic to the characters and the situations they're in. And uh, if moments come up that allow the theme to be brought to the surface, how can I complain too much in a film about the nature of coincidence? Yeah, there's a, there's a bit of times where I wouldn't say it, it verges on speech flying, but it isn't quite that. Yeah. And I, I, but I think it's organic because we're dealing with these statisticians who are verbose and are nerds and we'll talk about uh, the odds or something thereof. And this film does something that I've only actually seen Rick and Morty do lately. It talks like this, it's analogous in that both shows, both film, both talk about the idea of causality and randomness and to inform this like nihilistic idea of nothing matters, the world universe is random, but at the end of the day, and I don't think people miss this in Rick and Morty, I, I, I don't think people miss it here, there is an affirming quality to it. Uh, mm -hmm. As much as this film has many uh, negatives to be motivated, it's actually a, a film which in, in terms of how the characters interact with each other and how it ultimately ends up is very aspirational. It's very life affirming. And yeah. I like that, the idea that life is random um, and plays into the plot too, because there are a couple of things we think, oh, this is outrageous, this couldn't happen. It's the sort of thing we would write off if we saw it in a lot of other films, but it's integral to the narrative and yeah. the story and characters they're trying to impart. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I think, again, it was organic. And I, where I wouldn't have, it's not just to give the film, a, I would give the film a pass in this regard. I think it, um, it that, that particular approach elevates what would otherwise detract from most other films with those plot elements. Yeah, it's been very well thought through. And um, what you were saying just then reminded me that in terms of it being life affirming, it's in many ways a very sentimental film, but it's so well disguised. It, it never feels like schmaltz, which again, to keep on, on uh, kicking the straw Hollywood man, uh, you know, the American version of this would easily tip the scales um, but there are jagged edges in this. They're allowed to be jagged edges. Um, Mads Mikkelsen's character, uh, you know, um, we are trusted to empathize with him because of his grief. He doesn't need to be a, a nice guy. He doesn't even need to be not all that bad. He's a dick, right? But we understand. I like that this kind of storytelling that allows for extreme characters and extreme situations and still trusts that the audience will take it seriously. Um, yeah, it's great. I said before we started recording this that I feel like this movie is going to be on SBS World Movies and probably just regular SBS from now until the end of time. It's just so crowd-pleasing. 
And I think importantly to that, yes, he is uh, not a good character. He does improve in respects throughout the film. There is a redemption arc, uh, yeah. which is core to this, which I loved. Um, it's okay to have sympathy for people who aren't necessarily the best people. And I'd simply say that, yeah, I, 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 lo I love this movie. I, yeah. I, we will we will see a lot more of this. It's a perfect festival film. If you watch, it's one of the. It's easy to throw on, but it's, it's very accessible and. It's great to watch in the context of a festival because it's one of the more mainstream geared films that's programmed, and it turns out to be an extremely good mainstream movie. But um, it's not just you know it's not a festival movie in that sense. Like outside of being Danish, this is a movie that's basically aimed at everyone. Yeah. It's also of a certain very... age. It's also a very good father-daughter film. The character yeah. we have mentioned is, uh, we haven't really talked about a great deal, is Mixon's daughter. Also, a very well-drawn character uh, with her own particular wants, her identity. She's not just, her, her character doesn't st stop at, I lost my mother. She mm -hmm. wants certain things. We see her in a relationship. We see a particular dynamic with her father. We see the dynamic between her and the nerds. We keep using this film. The, the way that her boyfriend was depicted, I found so interesting because it could easily tip the scales into just mocking this guy for being a Gen Zer, but it avoids that. And, you know, you're, you're able to empathize with him, he, you know, despite his ridiculous hair, he's not a joke, but you're also able to see him through Mads Mikkelsen's angry eyes. This film orients you through his perspective so well. Um, yeah, it's, it's exciting. Uh, it's funny. It's sad. Um, and it's extremely well paced, pretty much nailed everything it was going for. And not, and to be clear, and I, not all the promotional material really conveys any of this. So uh, please seek it out. It is really, really good. Writers of Justice now playing at Miff Play. Um, you're listening to Film Fight Club on 2SDR with Glenn Falcons and Chris Evans of Rat Nehru. One more note about Writers of Justice. I believe it's scheduled to come out in cinemas in mid-October. But if you're listening to this in Sydney, we're almost guaranteed to still be in lockdown then. So I would say catch it on Miff Play. All right. The next film we are talking about is Wells Hopper. Oh, uh, Hopper Wells. Or Hopper Wells. Oh, sorry, Hopper Wells. No, no, I was calling it Wells Hopper as well because in my mind it's like the great one. You know. Yeah, you know, but after after seeing the movie, take that, I think, David Fincher. Um, yeah, but I think after seeing the movie, it kind of makes sense why the title switch happens. Hopper Wells. Yeah. Hopper is uh, a totally different protagonist, or his camera is focused more on him than. That, well, yeah, it's Hopper Bios Wells. So, yeah. Uh, really. That's, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, so this was filmed um, between the making of uh, Easy Rider and the last movie for Dennis Hopper. The last movie had a protracted editing period and uh, where it changed shape uh, several times. And I believe this interview was recorded around that time. Um, Dennis and Hopper- And while Wells was making The Other Side of the Wind. So there is- right. uh, Technology, what is that word? Uh, yeah. I mean, the, it's it's a very, very interesting meeting of minds. One, yeah. because these are two of the most interesting people who've ever worked in American film. And two, um, it's capturing a really interesting moment in the emergence of a new Hollywood, right? Where the, the young punk Dennis Hopper is meeting with Orson Welles, who is trying to make a, a film that keeps up with the times and goes beyond them yeah. um, with experimental cutting, et cetera. Partly that I would say in, in The Other Side of the Wind, if the version we've seen is accurate, inspired by what Hopper was doing in Easy Rider. Um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, and, and Hopper does have a cameo in The Other Side of the Wind as well. Yeah, right. Um, so one of the interesting notes about this film is that um, off camera, evidently, 
um, because there are cuts. Um, <laughs> I haven't really explained this, the strangeness of the form of this. It's basically just an unedited interview. It's yeah. two hours and it's apparently 20 minutes have been cut from the recovered footage of this interview session, which I believe is just people faffing around based on what we have here, which is a complete multicam shoot that's been seamlessly edited. Um, and because it's Wells interviewing Hopper for almost the entire film, we're just looking at Dennis Hopper's face. I suspect the re part of the reason that we never see Orson Wells is that um, at times he slips into the character Jake Hannaford, who is, was played by John Huston in The Other Side of the Wind. Um, yeah. And we as the audience, until there's a tell given by Dennis Hopper, never know if Wells is being Wells or Wells is being Jake Hannaford. But I suspect that um, Wells intended to possibly integrate this footage of the film. I heard that was the case. And if that was so, uh, dub over his own questions with John Huston, if he would have featured that in the film. This is just my speculation, but that would explain why there's never any shots on Wells himself. He's meant to be a kind of invisible presence here, mining material from Dennis Hopper. And that's really the, the main subject of, of the film. How will Orson Wells mine Dennis Hopper? It becomes an in, a interesting exercise in, in, in increasingly pointed interrogation and antagonism. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't think Hopper kind of was happy with this uh, experience. He was kind of, uh, I think at first he was a bit bemused but then he becomes frustrated and then he just becomes a sad mopey figure by the end of it it's I such it's i found this really interesting for <laughs> 130 minutes of just looking at dennis hopper while orson wells amazing voice booms out in, in the background yeah I, I the editing has a lot to do with this there's a great rhythm to to the cutting uh, by the cutter, as uh, Wells says, they should be known in the film, and, and he's credited. In but also, like, some of the things that Dennis Hopper reveals about himself just seem weird that you would say that in an interview with, like, Orson Welles, or somebody you just met and having dinner with. You know? I, I, I'm, sure, I'm sure they've met a, a few times before, but they might not never have had a conversation this in-depth. I'm not really sure. But it's interesting, because when it starts out, it's mostly conversation about films. Yeah. Um, what do you think of this? What do you think of, of Bunuel? What do you think of Antonioni? What do you think director's perspective should uh, be? It was, it was hilarious how much uh, Wells hated Antonioni. It's just like... Oh, <laughs> yeah. Like, well, he, he oh, he's absolute trash. And I was I've, just like, I've okay. read some, more, some brutal quotes from Wells about Antonioni before. In this film, he honestly, probably because he knew that Hopper liked him, uh, was holding back. <laughs> but, um, I don't think he was holding back. I no, seriously, if you've holding... read some of the things he said, it's been like, uh, like this, this was definitely the delicate version. But um, yeah, so many interesting conversations. What did you think of the, the discussion about like um, the story being compromised if the film gets too artsy, like, like Paths of Glory is the example Dennis Hopper gives? And then, which really offends Orson Welles. It's funny, as, yeah. as Hopper was saying that, I was thinking about how precise Orson Welles was with his compositions. Yeah. And, and that, honestly, that's the moment that triggers the final barrage of um, pestering from Orson yeah. Welles. I wonder if he just decided, hey man. But that's the thing. I, think, I think the problem is Hopper, even though he has some interesting insights, he is not precise enough in his language and what he's trying to say to actually convince Wells that this is what I'm actually trying to say, right? Yeah. I think a lot of the times Wells becomes frustrated by uh, 
what he feels that what's coming from Hopper is just empty platitudes. Because there yeah. is that moment where he's like, what is film for? And he's like, oh, it's about, to, I want to just change the world and do something nice. And he's like, oh, well, that's a nice mommy thing to say. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the main subject of the last 30 or so minutes of the film becomes Wells trying to pin Dennis Hopper down on whether he thinks films can actually change anyone or cause any kind of political change. But um, it's interesting because what comes across is that, I mean, we anyone who knows anything about Orson Welles knows these two things. One, he's an absolute intellectual titan. And two, uh, he thinks uh, even more of himself <laughs> than yeah. anyone else can see, even those of us in awe of his genius. So his, uh, his grandiosity and also his self-loathing um, comes across. It's a really interesting document. Um, I wondered with the Jake Hannaford questions, whether Jake Hannaford was just awesome, what, like when a comedian uses a character to ex express yeah. who they really are, but they're afraid to, it's like, oh no, I can, I can um, be as abrasive as, as I want because I'm just being Jake Hannaford right now. But then when it's convenient to him, he slips back into being Orson Welles. So you're constantly wondering how much of a put on some of the lines of questioning from Welles are. Yeah, I think, I think what frustrated me was at times was basically how standoffish Welles was throughout oh, the yeah. whole thing. It, it just felt that there was never a real sense of like, Hopper, we got a, we got a very good case study of what he was like and his entire, there was a character arc that he goes through through the entire interview pretty much. That you uh, come from, he starts off being sheepish and giggly and basically being reverential towards Wells to being, mm. you know, fuck off, I don't want to get out of this interview. Basically, yeah. he, was, he was that frustrated by the end of it. But we're just making a movie. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. Um... <laughs> but I don't think so. It, it just felt, it, by the end of it, it did feel like a personal attack. And I think that's how Papa took it. Essentially. It's, it's interesting because I was saying that about Wells before that he's extremely pretentious and extremely smart. Whereas someone like Dennis Hopper isn't necessarily the, the titan that Orson Welles was, you know. Um, yeah. He admits he, he basically never reads, for example, in this interview, which is a crazy thing, to, as you were saying before, say to Orson Welles. Well, um, Orson Welles doesn't know about Bob Dylan, apparently. I know, that's the I thing. Don't know, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. Bob Dylan. Yeah. So interesting. But um, in 1970. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, well, I mean, for a person who doesn't read, I don't know what I should be offended by more, that you don't know who Bob Dylan is, or you should be offended by someone who doesn't read. They both so. live in their own worlds. But yeah, yeah, Dennis Hopper didn't need to be as grand as Orson Welles. He was a guy who just had his finger on the pulse of a changing time that, in, that I think Orson felt was passing him by. And I wonder if there's a degree of jealousy coming out, who's this oh, shot totally. that everyone's paying attention to. It, um, it's it, very obvious. I mean, yeah, I mean, some Peter, of the personal attacks were not necessary. I felt they were just, they were just too personal. Peter Bogdanovich, who was a great friend of Orson Welles as, when he was a critic and then as he turned into a filmmaker, when he attained a certain level of success, he felt like Welles turned on him. He just hates to see a wonder kid like himself being the toast of when he was, when he made Citizen Kane, being the toast of the, the, of the town. Um, it unleashes something really ugly in him and uh, he's documented it forevermore here. It's, yeah. I, I don't hate Orson Welles in this, by the way. I found him very entertaining. His laugh is uh, is one of the, the all-time great uh, laughs. Yeah. And uh, um, some of his line of questioning is really interesting. I mean, but, that's the but, thing, right? Even though yeah. he's off screen, his voice is so distinctive that you can't 
ever he's, take out Orson Welles from the frame. Like, he's in charge. He's he's yeah. controlling Dennis Hopper completely at this point. Yeah. Dennis Hopper has a great smile. He's he's like an, he has an interesting face. Um, he, if you're going to stare at someone for two hours, uh, Dennis Hopper, circa 1970. And, and there, there's there's certain level of innocence innocence to his face as well. I mean, when he's actually recounting stuff. Especially stories about Elvis, for example, and right, the magical yeah. movies, like the, the early sort of magical yeah. movies, and and the stories you about. You really do believe him. You kind of do believe him. Yeah, and, and this, it's true. And the stories he tells about his his family and growing up in Kansas and such, which just come out in drips and drabs. Because yeah. I feel like uh, Wells wasn't especially interested in that that sort of stuff. But some of the psychoanalytic stuff was weird, though. Which is, I was just like, you know, it's like, oh, I just want to be a director to sleep with more chicks. But actually, the only person I want to sleep with is. You know, my mom. Oh, anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. When, that when was so weird. So, I wish yeah. I could have gone to bed with her thinking about his mom. Yeah. I was just like, <laughs> where did that come from? It that was, was that, weird. yeah. Um, but there's so many great time capsules in this. When he speaks about how much he loves watching the news and says, I wish it could be that I could, that the news would run all day. I would yeah. just sit there for hours. T clearly, this is the demand that Supply met 10 years later when CNN yeah. was founded. Yeah. But, um, or the, another interesting time capsule aspect of this, how fascinating to me that they both talk about the left as if they are not part of it and their frustrations with it. When, as comes out um, through the, the conversation, they're both very left-wing, not, yeah. not necessarily hardcore left-wing by today's standards, but um, today I would classify them both as being left of center progressives, but they yeah. lived in such an extremely left-wing time that you know, to them being a leftist meant you're a communist who's being visited by the FBI. So they're just yeah. saying, oh, it's so difficult to talk to the leftists. But yeah, today, 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 like today, to today, today, basically, because everyone is sent to right. Anything left exactly. is left wing. Yeah, it's really a reminder of how far we've um, we've shifted to the right. But Dennis Hopper predicts that when he talks about how when Wells is saying, why aren't you trying to start the revolution? And he says, you know, the boot's about to come down he's onto it and he also seems to know what the fate of the last movie was going to be it was the the last movie he directed yeah um, hopper true. comments you know like oh i i i want to make movies you know if i can make one or two um you know before they they stop me they stopped him after a second which he was in the process of editing i think he knew um, so it's a, it's an interesting because both of them are in, in a bit of a sad mood yeah. and a reflective mood. but actually from from that from that perspective i think uh, Hopper comes across more as a tragic figure in this one because you can see that he has certain insights about his own future, mm. uh, which Wells is unable to admit about himself. Yeah, it's true. Right. And, you know, and, Wells is living more in denial than Hopper is, probably. They're, which is they're, why I think. Uh, yeah, Hopper, Hopper you're right. More well, sympathetic. Wells is too proud. Hopper is. Uh, Hopper has never been the wonder kid. He's sort of kind of broken it big and hoping it can ride it as far as it goes. He wants um, to be the Hubble wants to be the easy writer. Okay. They're both they're, honestly they're both tragic figures um, who should have been given both had immense talent, both um, as the new Hollywood wave wrote on in the 70s, should have been given way more funding. Um, they they should never have been in the situation that they could not get money to make films. Um, so it, it reflects very sadly on on American culture. But yeah, what an interesting time and what an interesting meeting of minds. Yeah. Super. That's that. That's uh, Papa Wells. Moving right along, Moving right as, along. As, as as Austin Wells would say, as he says multiple times in this film.
Yes. Um, so the next film we were talking about, and we're listening to Film Fight Club on 2SL with Glenn Falcons and Chris Evans of Right Nehru. We're going to be talking into the podcast on Night of Kings and Days. But briefly, we want to touch on Wife and the Spy, which we're going to be continuing on. It's a Kiyoshi Kurosawa film. It is about the wife of an important figure in World War II era Japan. It is a story of political intrigue, broadly speaking. I think this is a situation where the title really just gives you an idea of exactly what the film is. It's going to be about a wife of a spy. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> right. a question. I, I, would simple, I would simply say that for me, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the direction and production design didn't quite match up to the story and screenwriting for me. Um, so, so I enjoyed on, on the, Oh, on the note of the screenwriting, um, this film was co-written by Ryusuke Hamaguchi, who is the most notable of Kyushu Kurosawa's students because he's also a quite significant film teacher in Japan. Uh, Ryusuke Hamaguchi is on the up and up and up. He's made two great films in Happy Hour. His co-writer, um, his co-writer of Happy Hour worked on this one as well. Um, and Asako One Plus Two. Um, and this year he's had prize winning films in both Berlin and Cannes. So uh, there's some great talent working on this script. It is a great script, yes. but I disagree that it's not so well directed. Production designs, yes. I think the production design could be better. I think the cinematography could be technically better, but I think a lot of this can be explained by it being a TV movie. Um, it's as, as far as TV budgets go, it looks great. Yes, to me, yeah. But I, um, I, judge, I judge by the standards of any cinema outing. And we're being, we're being presented it as a film. Um, but I, I, I disagree on the d- direction. I thought it was very, very precise. Um, I thought the, the way that it's mapped out in wide shots is simultaneously very classical, but it has a, a really tense edge to it. Um, the way that the shots are allowed to linger after uh, characters leave the frame, which Kurosawa often does, the attention to spaces and the, the, the grimy, shadowy spaces that he um, brings about, which have been a, a trademark of his horror films and uh, easily slide into this almost Hitchcockian thriller. Um, I was really impressed by this film visually. I, I'm, I'm not quite sure what your problems with the direction are, but maybe you can elaborate it into the podcast. And I will be I'm happy to look forward to doing so. So please do subscribe on iTunes and Spotify. We'll be back in the next episode talking all things more Melbourne's National Film Festival. The following week, back to our regular movies. Yeah. Uh, please let us know what you'd like us to fight about. Um, stay safe. Um, get on to Play and the other film festivals, including the Indian Film Festival of Melbourne, while streaming online and while we're stuck inside. This has been Glenn Fowling's Nankar Sevens of Rat Nehru. Stay tuned for the Sonic Assassin. Have a wonderful night and enjoy movies. Good night. Welcome back to Film Fight Club, where we are talking Wife of a Spy. Okay, yes, I agree the production design is a little lax. I appreciate that. Um, not terrible. It's not like, oh, this is so cheap. It's just a little below what you would hope for. And if you've seen other Kiyoshi Kurosawa films, the, techni- the production design and the technical aspects of the cinematography are lacking in comparison. It's a TV movie. But I don't mind, and I'm going to talk a little later about a film, Out of Kings, which had a great production values for a very limited budget and resources. I don't take issue with a film that has those limited resources, provided the director can um, lean into it. I'm reminded of this, of the, um, look, I know this is going to sound pejorative because I'm referring to Tom Hooper. He's made better stuff than Cats. I reminded of the Tom Hooper miniseries, John Adams, a film, a, a series that was quite high production values, um, good sets. However, Hooper insisted on using these quite wide shots, which drew attention to the artif- artifice of the sets. And I think that was a very poor um, directorial and cinematographic choice in that. And I feel that 
one aspect of the wide shot, and even the most consequential aspect of the wide shot, which Kurosawa predominantly relies on, draws attention to this lack of production design and production values, and the fact that this is a set. And mm. uh, you'll, for, the, for, the, for this purpose, a lot of directors usually use more intimate shots in period pieces. And I feel this, especially given it's such a character-driven drama, this film could have used such more of an emphasis, that much more emphasis right. thereof. Long takes, master shots, wide shots with um, precise camera movements is, you know, that is Kurosawa's style that he brings to basically every film. I can understand why he didn't want to mix it up here, but at, at the same time, um, I can see what you mean. It would it work better to the budget that he's, he's going with here if he did. Um, but I didn't mind the artifice of the set so much, I guess, because I'm, I was just so into the directorial style. Like there's um there's the the use of this image of a chessboard, which was like right out of Hitchcock, just a perfect suspense hook, um and uh, yeah I, I I don't know I think there's just a pleasure in watching films made the old fashioned way where you get to see characters move around, interest the blocking shifts the the relations between the characters spatially shift they turn away to the camera and they meet the light and. I don't know. It's it's a, a dying art, so it's just nice to see classical filmmaking. But, but I think with Hitchcock's style, this is a more modern slow burn. Thriller. It is. It's not a, a directly Hitchcock, but th there's some aspects that are Hitchcockian. Yeah, Hitchcock, Hitchcock's style depended on. It's it's not. It's more than just the bomb under the table adage. It's the idea that and Vertigo is the prime example. Of this I would also refer to something like North by Northwest, where every scene you feel something's about to devolve or blow up or fall apart. And I feel this was evident in a few scenes, but not an overwhelming amount to really render it Hitchcockian. That much of a from a directorial perspective, engaging thriller. I did, um, as it went on, to be honest, I did feel a mounting tension and dread. Um, just historical knowledge gives you that that sense of tension. Yes. But um, I, I, even though I really enjoyed the film, Agreed. I don't. I, yeah, I don't think it stuck the landing. I feel like the the ending feels like a, a fizzling out of all the tension that's been built up. Um, when it didn't need to be, given the events being depicted, it could easily have have landed in a heavier way. I think. His hand slipped a bit there. Um, but yeah, I, I really love the rhythms of this film. I, I, I loved it as a, as a formal exercise outside of the production value, not living up to that aesthetic. And I, I feel I need to talk a little bit more about just the use of, and I would say wide versus master shots. Um, there isn't an over-reliance in master shots, but there are a lot of slightly tight wide shots over what the master shots are. And I feel you're in this weird middle space where they're not intimate shots, they're not in the role language of establishing shots. So they're just most of the film, including the conversations that happen in interiors, which is most of the film, the camera is set at the remove. And I don't think the direction here is actually really informing anything or intrinsic to what the narrative is trying to tell. It's not, it, 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 and I don't mean that for it to be a character-focused drama, it needs to be intimate and close-ups and point of view shots, but there's, there's a, such an overwhelming emphasis on the dynamic therein that you don't get the intimate point of view experiences that um, a character like Cary Grant in North by Northwest benefited so from. Again, I'll use the example of Jimmy Stewart and Vertigo, and I feel the remove the cameras always at um, doesn't really add anything to so much of what this film could otherwise have been. 
I can see that. I think he, he's very precise with it. There's a few close-ups, which I do think because they, they're used so sparingly do land. I'm thinking of um, an early major confrontation between the wife and the so, supposed spy um, where suddenly we're, we've got quite, got quite intense close-ups and um, that break in the rhythm of the film is really felt. And I like the way that um, a lot of these master type shots start with a slightly off kilter, unusual framing, and then gradually shift it, you know, as the characters move closer to the camera into something more conventional. Um, I don't know, I, even though I can see that it's not um, necessarily raising the film to, um, actually, to be honest, it did elevate the film to, for me, just the enjoyment of that aesthetic, because um, if I, Imagine this in my head with a more conventional, um, contemporary Hollywood mainstream style. I think you know. I think it would have been lesser for me. I, I think the script, the script would still be great. Um, the way that it draws you into the the characters and the intrigue and and surprises you um, would still be there. But I, I really liked these long lingering shots of the, the locations because- um, Locations, yes. And the exterior cinematography, including one street scene where someone's walking down a street is there's a, there's a few the street scenes- Interior shots, there's a most of the film which will, um, yeah. just annoys me. Right. The way that, um, although some of the, the darker interiors, the safe or the an underground, uh, in some ways, I don't want to spoil too much location, I thought were, were shot really beautifully. But speaking on the on those um, spaces, there's a few times in the film where Kurosawa makes the um, Imperial Japanese Army doing their military exercises part of the image, um, and or like has a scene going on in the corner while that's going on in the background. Um, perfect. I, I really like the sense in here about how the uh, the fascist regime is everywhere, which is is what this the script is about. How there's really no escaping it, and it's an omnipresent force. On that note, um, I, I think that I want to give praise to Kurosawa for taking on this subject matter at this point in time. I think uh, given uh, the horrendous state of Japanese politics in regards to this, this is a, a pretty bold act. Um, to elaborate, there's a huge conservative um, push in Japan to whitewash, whitewash Japan's history of war crime and atrocities uh, during World War II and beforehand. Um, there's a sense, a desire among, um, yeah, a lot of the far right in Japan to, um, to rehabilitate the Imperial Japanese army, um, and portray that, that is sort of the good old days that's been lost, um, and, uh, you know, pressure not to mention any of this in school curriculums, etc. Um, it's still quite taboo in Japan. And uh, I think a lot of people in Japan are not aware of the extent of uh, what was committed. This film is honest. Um, this movie is directly reckoning with the, the legacy in China of the Imperial Japanese Army. Um, and it does so in a, a furthering my saying that it's honest. A lot of the times um, these sorts of narratives, uh, whether from America or anyone else, when looking back on shames of the past, sort of frame it about the heroic struggle of, of his, the, the people who resisted. And though this film is about a person who, who is heroic in wanting to bring the truth to light here, the emphasis isn't on, you know, look how actually there were some good guys here. The emphasis is on how the entire society is against them. Um, so I, I think it, it was within that Japanese context, it's really brave. And on that note, I wonder if that's 
part of the reason why this is a TV movie. I wonder if Kurosawa did, you know, did this to get it to as many eyes as possible instead of making it as a, as a film with a bigger budget, but potentially um, a more limited audience. This notably aired um, in June last year, when the Tokyo, uh, uh, end of June, when the Tokyo Olympics were meant to begin. And uh, NHK, the, the national broadcaster, uh, was to launch for the first time in the world, 8K broadcasts of the Tokyo Olympic Games. So this film was shot in HK, sorry, in 8K to premiere as the channel launched um, in the lead up to the games. So he really made this as event television. So doing that while uh, speaking to this subject matter in such an honest way, I think is, is really praiseworthy and bold, um, especially because Japan is shifting further right and uh, these voices are being given more and more legitimacy by the, the government. I was impressed at how honest this film was uh, from a historical perspective. I think we see a lot of films that are made. Uh, not, I know there are a number of films made in Japan directly addressing these sorts of issues. There are a lot of films including, uh, made outside of Japan, including Chinese films, um, addressing this history. I was... I, I, I remember Midway, I saw recently a very underrated film which does um, touch on this. And I was further impressed, something I haven't really seen explored in cinema. There's been a lot of, and there always has been, but more than recently, more so recently, there have been a, lo a lot of Japanese cinema focusing on this era and something this film did that I haven't seen a lot of them do. In fact, any of them do, at least the ones I've seen, is focus on the pre-war economic relationship between America and Japan, um, which was as which many locals on both on both Japan and America and other countries sought to further and enliven and that sense of loss that um, many internally within Japan did feel and were heavily affected by. Um, that's a history, I'm, that element of it is something I'm not overly familiar with and I really liked that focus. I, and I, 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 notwithstanding the elements of the direction of production design, I, I, I thought this was, I thought this was a watch, I thought it was good. One thing I, I did think while we were talking just then um, to defend the production design one last time for the road, um, some of the interiors where we're showing that the alignments of uh, Imperial soldiers and guards, I found effectively claustrophobic, you know, these kind of like geometric designs, people scattered around the frame. Um, in those moments, I feel like the, the wide kind of design really uh, pays off because it makes you feel more trapped than a tight close up would have, I think. Yeah, I think for the interiors, the problem is you, you have all these great external shots in natural light. The interior shots, it's not just the set design, it's that the lighting isn't the so lighting great. looks like it was written, like there's these bright, you know, heavy fog lights coming out from outside the set, going through the blinders. It looks like it's, it's yeah, blown funny. out wide, blown out wide. Like there's bits when um, they're on a, a tram and everything out the window is white. <laughs> yeah, that's a budget constraint. Yeah, and it, <laughs> it, it, it's not that it's there, it's that there are these otherwise shots that are such of a different quality. It's something I'm going to go on to talk about with Night of Kings in a few moments. I, and as we discussed uh, in, the in the last film, I don't mind if there is a limited resources, provided there is a consistent approach that doesn't otherwise take you out of the film. And the director leans into that. Uh, Kurosawa did for parts of this, but for dramatic parts of it, he did not. So that is that is... White Night of Wife of a Spy. And the next film we are talking about is Days. Yeah, this yeah. one was great. Which was probably my favorite film uh, from this lineup. This is my favorite film of the lineup as well. Um, the, uh, the number two would be 
um, the uh, writers of justice. So it's very hard to compare them. Which I would uh, now see because yeah. I was not expecting such high price for that. Yeah, it's, it's very well executed. But um, this film is also very well executed, but uh, two narrative films could pretty much not be more different. Um, yeah. This film is the new one from Simon Liang, one of the uh, pioneers of the wave of slow cinema that continues to rear its head at festivals. And one of the people who Rears. makes it, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think that slow cinema um, is played out at this stage, even though I, I um, still think there are vital um, but we have we have two, made two very good examples. We have two very good examples of slow cinema in MIF this year, right? We have that's right. From what we have seen, what we do when we look at the sky, and yeah, or what we do when we look at the sky, what we look. At what do we sky. see when we look what at the sky? What do we see when we look at the sky? Sorry, yeah, nowadays, yeah. yeah. The second. Yeah, one. but this film, um, Sai has always made slow films. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't seen everything he's made. But I feel like uh, with his last film before that, well, he, he did a documentary which was just shots of people's faces with music by Ryuichi Sakamoto. I, I didn't see that. Um, yeah. Played at the Taiwanese Film Festival a couple of years ago, but I, I couldn't make it. But um, his last sort of narrative film, Journey to the West, yeah. um, was an exercise in ultra slowness. You know, he's always been slow but, and uh, minimal with a lack of dialogue. But now that uh, maybe the world's caught up to him in uh, you know, prioritizing that as the mode of making art films, he's, he's, and I guess because he's, he's getting older and becoming more of his own style as older directors um, tend to do, he's going ultra slow. So uh, Long Days, sorry, not Long Days, Journey Tonight, Journey to the West, um, it was about a monk walking through Paris um, yeah. very, very, very slowly, um, mining a lot of comedy from that. This film is not not so comedic, but it's almost as still. Uh, many of the shots in this uh, feature simply a person standing in place or sitting or walking. Um, but it's the story of a man in Bangkok um, and another man who he will meet. I don't know if I want to say more than that because the story is so minimalistic that uh, yeah it's not even about the plot of the story i mean that's it this is it there are two people who are destined to meet or not yeah but they are from the way the story is set up you think that they would meet at some point and that's yeah. about it. the camera keeps that's cutting it. between them uh yeah. until they might meet this is uh, a really beautiful film like i said before he he makes it look easy because if you were analyzing how this film works so so well when a lot of uh recent slow cinema ripoffs have just been so utterly boring watching paint dry it's hard to say exactly what Sai is doing yeah, it, yeah uh, you're right because technically there's nothing more to the film than what we've just said yeah this, this is it this is the film the longest uh, most punishing segment to me was watching people uh, prepare food <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was okay. That was nice. Uh, I, I got it to learn a lot thing. more about. It I is didn't all know nice. much about Taiwanese cuisine, but I did get to know a lot more about their cuisine through that. Right. Thing. So I was taking notes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but thinking about what is it that Sai does well, he, he really grounds it in the character. He really like you know knows that staring at a person looking unhappy for a, a long time. You, you start to sink into that, that mind frame of being in that space with him. This is really a film about loneliness. So the accumulated weight of watching these, these two figures alone 
starts to bear, you know, wear on you. He's also attuned to the the little things that make us, you know, feel alone. That like the individual suffering that isolates you from the world. In this case, the main character's neck problems. Right? Yeah. There's a, a shot tracking him as he walks through a crowd, um, where, you know, it breaks from the typical minimalism into handheld shaky cam. Um, but it it feels just so incredibly isolating to be with this person with this issue moving through a crowd of of, of and people. I, and I, and I guess relate. yeah, and I guess part of the other thing is look, we're all in lockdown in Sydney. This is like feels like the never ending lockdown which is going to be, and it's been a while. So this mm-hmm. film, at this point in time when you're watching it, feels incredibly personal as well. It kind of it, like exacerbates that aspect of loneliness that you've been trying to avoid yourself at this point in time. Yeah, it, it's really close to home. Um, and there's an incredible sincerity. But it's not a heavy film. I mean, I mean that's, that's the thing. And I, I would like to differentiate between that. I mean, there is definitely a pathos element to it, but it doesn't brood. It's not mm-hmm. a brooding film that... that really yeah. Doesn't... That's something we that I've really that. appreciated about um, some of, well, he's uh, done less brooding films before, but I find typically a lot of his films to be very brooding. Um, but uh, Jenny- This one wasn't. So Jenny, was, yeah. Jenny to the West and this. Yeah. Um, there, there's actually a, a real warmth to them. Um, there's a scene which is near, I, I guess it's near the middle of the film, but it's really the climax, um, which is, <laughs> and it goes on for, a long time which is so sensuously beautiful just the 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 appreciation of the body by the camera um and the appreciation of human desire for contact is so profoundly expressed but again when you analyze it it's like what is Sai even doing to to, Uh, to build this magic yeah, How is this he is doing? what I like. Yeah, this all right. Don't just want to reach out. It's fine. It's simple as that. It's mm, like that. Mm. It's not that simple. But yeah, there's uh, as it says at the beginning, it's, in, it's intentionally unsubtitled. Um, but uh, I, I possibly because of to emulate the language barrier that the characters have. But uh, also, I, you not, you didn't need any dialogue. I mean, no, it's all visual anyway. You really don't. Um, I think he he wants you to be alone uh, with characters' silences. On that note, um, there's one aspect of the the film that breaks the silence, which is so simple but so touching. That's it. I, did did you find uh, yeah. the culmination yeah. of this film just enormously touching? Yeah. It's funny because as as I was watching it, I was thinking, okay, this is going on a little bit too long, but I I don't mind. It's like if when you when you but, hit on something that I, simple, I, I it's like a fairy thing. I understand that if there are some people who might this is not their cup of tea because this is. A very particular style, and if mm. you're not patient enough, mm. it doesn't reap reward. It's actually rewarding your patience. Yeah, but not just patience. I mean, it's just it draws you in, though. I I, yeah. I was mesmerized by halfway through this film, just completely. Yeah, mesmerized. but also because like there's nothing else to do. I mean, that's part of the thing. It's rewiring your kind of default wiring of your brain, where you are forced to be productive twenty four seven, and right. You feel like is a nice way to ultra recreate. ultra late capitalism world where you have to be doing something every five minutes and you need gratification mm-hmm. and you desire the same thing from cinema. But mm-hmm. I guess what this film is doing is sort of rewiring your brain. Be like, nah, you know, just just let things be. Let let's slow it down. Let's see, you know. It's a um, film for people who still have an attention span, and uh, for those who've already <laughs> lost it, uh, maybe it could be a useful tool for rewiring yourself, as you said. Maybe we could do some Clockwork Orange-style re-education camps 
for the TikTok addicts of the world. Sorry, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, I mean, that's, I'm not that's, a bitter that's, old man. What are you talking about? That, that's that's <laughs> guys, we're actually covering he's all that in like two weeks. So TikTok hate. Yeah, it's a bit of a preview. We're going to be covering this bitter film of August. You know, but honestly, this is what I'm actually mostly worried about, that this film is not going to get its new appreciation. Well, here's the thing. Because here's... it's appealing to a demographic or the kind of people who probably will not be watching this film online because, you know, this is... I would love That's to see true. it in a theater because it's... That's true. Crowd, um... ...which probably would be a lot older. They would not be watching it on a laptop or like... We, we, we yeah, and to, to soak up the, um, the, the detail in these compositions. But um, saying what you were about the um, way that it, it rewires you um, and the slowness and how it's for a limited audience. A lot of people, I think, you know, can't even watch like a conventional superhero movie without checking their phone these days. Yeah. This movie is for a niche and that's okay. Um, but what's interesting is Sai has clearly shrunk his budgets. This, this is more rough, yeah. um, you know, this is like DSLR filmmaking at points. Um, possibly the whole way through. I'm not sure how it was filmed, but it feels very lo-fi. Um, whereas size in the past worked with a level of cinematographic gloss. Um, I, I feel like he's rolling with the times, but there's a shrinking place for this kind of cinematic art. And, uh, you know, it's fine. My life was enriched for having watched this. I don't mind, uh, you know, um, I, 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 anyone who does mind or, or thinks this is pretentious, I think has uh, very wrong priorities Look, and a limited view of the medium. This is, this is my hot take. I, if anything else, this is less pretentious. This is anti-pretentious. It's not pretentious. Is, it's so sincere. What is pretentious is, is cinema that is just itching to give you gratification every two seconds with a non-earned you know, a uh, gag or a joke, which is ironic every five seconds. I what is that is pretentious. That I is think pretentious. what is pretentious is anything that's not sincere. So for me, one of the most pretentious movies I've seen is like, is The Revenant, because that felt so overblown to me. Yeah. You know, in terms of the messaging when it's basically like a B revenge movie. Um, that's the usually Austin, anyway. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, on the Revenant, there's actually a much more fascinating story of what really happened, but I digress. That's it. They made the story worse with the changes it made it less interesting. Can you imagine a confrontation between, um, I'm sorry, I forgot the name of the main figure and the guy, the man who killed his son and him not being able to take justice because um, he availed himself of the armed army's protection. Oh, that yeah. That would have been incredible to watch. But that wouldn't have uh, pleased crowds. That would have been a movie that but said the frustration of real life. Yeah. But back back to days for, uh, for a few more moments. Um, a, a small frame of time compared to some of the shots in this film. Um, <laughs> I think trying to analyze now how it works, part of it is that the shots themselves are so beautiful, but they're beautiful in unusual ways. There's only a few what I would call conventionally composed shots in this. Most of the time um, it's kind of off-center in strange ways or the frame is broken up by something like a tree or something hanging down. Um, and there's multiple layers of things going on, whether it's like cooking, watching the embers spill out while in the, of the fire, while in the background, someone's, you know, doing something, washing food, or um, there's an incredible shot with a window out of a skyscraper where as the shot goes on, you realize what, what's going on with the helicopter outside. The cat, did you, did you yeah. follow the, did you, I, were you wondering if it's the same cat across the multiple shots that the cat turns up in? Yeah, I was. it look like it. Well, there's 
you know, the shot of the wall with the cat walking across. Yeah. That was one of the most mesmerizing things I've seen in cinema in a long time. It's just a shot of a wall with like glass, it's transparent. See, this is the kind of film that I would want like a, a DTP projector for. And like, oh I yeah, and... here's the thing. This showed in Sydney, Mardi Gras Film Festival and Taiwanese Film Festival did a screening at the beginning of the year, but it was not very well marketed. Uh, oh. So I didn't hear yeah, about I, it. I would if I knew I it was Sai, if I had read Sai's name, I wouldn't yeah. want to. And it, other other Sai fans I know didn't know it was on. But yeah, I would have really appreciated seeing this on the big screen. The shot of the, the cat, just to describe and give a sense of what this film is doing. Um, I don't know that words can do this justice, but it's a shot of light catching on a wall at just the right moment in the afternoon. Um, and there's no motion in the shot. Except as it goes on, you notice that there's a cat moving across the frame. Um, and you're just, yeah. it's so small in the frame, but you're watching it like drink and shake itself off and like do cat things and get lost in the, in the light refracting on the windows and then emerging again. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah. It, it's a beautiful way of uh, just guiding your, uh, what you call gaze. You, yeah, exactly. And, and guiding your mind. It's all these symbols of isolation. Like the cat, um, you know, the, the next time we see a cat, it, it's coming in to take some food and affection from humans, um, which, you know, reflects the, the way that the people are acting in this film, I think. Um, it's a very, very simple film. Yeah, it's a simple, but it's not, but it's, I mean. But that's it, but the depth just, of emotions is is. We don't deep. get these kind of movies or not just now or ever, I guess. This, this is a lost time. It's a time capsule kind of thing. And this film's not trying to, to lecture you this film is not deeply trying to manipulate you, though you could call it quite sentimental. Um, it's it's real, you know. It's it feels thing. completely I mean, honest. Being sentimental is a good thing. I mean, I, I, I think so. That, I think it's necessary. I, I, I don't times. know. I don't know when that became uncool. For whatever generation, it became uncool. But I'm sorry, being sentimental is a great thing. Anyway, so that's sad. So that is days. Screening at Mythplay, as are all the rest of these films. Yep. Um, the last one we're covering briefly is Night of the Kings. It is a feature from Cote d'Ivoire from director Philippe Lacoste. Um, and it is a French language film. It is about an inmate who arrives in a prison, which is notably run as statedly the only prison in the world run by the inmates and found that in a very classical sense, you'll recognize this archetypal story that he has to tell stories all night. Hence, I twist on, of course, 1001 Nights. Hence, a particular fate arise. Um, I really liked this film. I love how much they set up not just the internal geography, but the internal ecosystem of the prison, the stronger personalities, um, some of the more um, enigmatic personalities, people who are in, and the, the power dynamic, how there's this internal um, system of election, but also how persons who are, are more charismatic or uh, have a, a particular presence, like in the theatre, and this film is not just theatrical, but about theatre, can exert control, as in many other forums in life, particularly in such an internally um, dependent environment such as this. There is a mate for a film, Chris? Oh, no, no. Yeah, I, I didn't, yeah, sorry. Not all good. Um, there is a there's really good natural cinematography in this. Most of this film, by virtue of the narrative, takes place internally, hmm. but the 
uh, there are dream sequences that take place in environments external. Or story sequences, perhaps, would be a more accurate way of putting it. Well, yes and no. There, there are some dreams. There are some dreams. The Yeah, um, I, I feel like this film gets by purely on the strength of the concept. The concept is so good. As you say, it's about theater. It's watching a person telling a story and seeing other people participate and try to, you know, like singing as, as this character tells his story, um, watching the, the interactions of the, the people surrounding him. Um, the concept is so interesting of this jail um, and of the, the value that these people place on storytelling and, and on collaborative storytelling that I feel like uh, it, smooths over some of the flaws of the film, but by the end of it, uh, those are becoming more and more apparent. Yep. I like that there is a tradition in a lot of African cinema, which mirrors not just a lot of classical cinema, but a lot of Italian neorealist cinema. Um, I think Hollywood cinema in the 40s and 50s, where the artifice of theatricality and and there was audiences that people are more used to seeing theater um, is something that is not just accepted but embraced. I think in a lot of modern American and Western cinema, we have to it has to be as real as possible. There is some CGI as an example in this. It's not high level CGI like you might see in a horror film, but it does the trick because within the context of these heightened dreamscapes which we are imparted, um, it, there all is a feeling that this is. Um, the, again, the lens introduction design show that this is something that is taking place in an, an otherworldly respect. Therefore, it can be a little heightened. It can be a little, it can feel and should feel a little artificial. Mm. It's not just that the production design leans into this, but the narrative is endemic to it. And that's something I really liked about this. And it's not just then, it's the scenes where Roman is telling the story and people interject and roll around him like that's it. Scene. set. It's beautiful. Anticipate. Um, to explain what really this concept is, the new inmate is basically told that he has to be the Roman, the storyteller, and tell a story through the night. Um, but as he does so, you know, he's, he's surrounded by all of the inmates um, who are, as we've been describing, participating in the telling of it. Last week, I complained about how um, the what do we see when we look at the sky turned into another art film about the glory of cinema. And I was saying, like, find other ways to do it, find other ways to filter it. You could, this is something that could function as a metaphor for cinema. You know, a big crew of people, there's, there's one person telling a story and everyone's chipping in to try and add emotion, add, add what, what can I bring to it to, to enhance that person's story, um, like a film crew and a director, right? Um, you yeah. could easily read it that way, but it's broad enough that it can speak to other things. This is what I mean when I say I don't want cinema to just focus on cinema, and if it does, I think it should filter that through something that other people can find meaning in who aren't necessarily dyed-in-the-wool cinephiles. Um, this film in the strength of its concept, it gives you what you're always hoping for when you watch a film, which is to see something new, right? To yeah. show, show me something I've never seen before. I've never seen something like this before. Um, I this, this reminded me more than it does of a lot of films of just the, um, I grew up in the Southern Cape and just the classical storytelling that 
you'd see in here around the place. So people would jump in and inject. It wouldn't often just be one storyteller. People would jump in and say, oh, yes, I'm going to contribute this too. It becomes mm -hmm. organic in that they themselves change what the story is. And I agree that this could have been frustrating if it was a story about cinema. But this isn't. This is more fundamental than this. This yeah. is a story, story about storytelling itself. And, our, and, our, and the value, the necessity of stories to us, the way that stories hold us together and give people something to, to associate to their own lives and gives them something to look forward to and to power them on. And that's beautiful to watch because something just going to, without being pretentious, harking back to how stories are relevant in our lives. And I loved seeing these really big, tough figures who are threatening and who are very real, but who are just this, who are saying, this is important to us, this is essential yeah. for us for our welfare and our mental health and our state. And we need and want stories. And yeah. I think there's something um, that's that we need right now, material then um, that could otherwise be um, high, the high and mightiness of the cinema is the greatest thing you will see, which we have, which you would otherwise typically get at yeah. any myth. Um, was something we, in the terms context of what we do, we look at, see, we look at this guy again, excuse me, something that doesn't quite breach that boundary, but um, there are elements thereof. We've seen films like that before and we'll see them again. Um, but as you said before, this, this even though it could easily be a film metaphor with um, some of the, the dream sequences and the cutaways and such, it could also be a theater metaphor. And, as, and again, it could also just be a stand-in for the power of storytelling itself. Yeah, um, it but yeah. Sorry, the, the rhythm of the way that people participate and the and uh, the unexpected kind of snaking in and out of the other inmates and singing and, and dancing um, at times may, uh, felt like it could turn into a full-blown film musical. And I was actually thinking how great it would be to see the musical version of this. Yeah, and tradition, look, this, it really goes back to a really beautiful theatre tradition. This, I haven't done the research. I can see this otherwise could have been done or otherwise adapted as a play. Absolutely. And it could very well have worked. Um, it reminds me, I referred earlier to how this is a tradition of a lot of modern African cinema. I covered a couple of years ago, a really beautiful Ghanan film, which is on Netflix, The Burial of Kojo, which similarly jumps, or which is a similar production budget, jumps away to dreamscapes and um, has these beautiful heightened moments. That one lent a little more into costume design. This one um, relied on CGI. The performance more. I'm drawn. It's not too much CGI though. No, not too much. I'm drawn to a couple of the dreamscape sequences. One, there is a stunning sequence on a beach between an old blind man. That was great. And a young boy. There's another one where there's a procession moving along, and I, I just think there is getting into acting. There is, I think, a really strong move among in the past 30 years among America, particularly American cinema, to realism, naturalism, which moves away from the more bombastic traditional theatrical approach. There's and both here, I would say. There's both here. I mean, look at classic BBC serials like Doctor Who, and it really is um, limited uh, production design and actors, and, and often formulaic script, but actors looking to elevate that. This um, embraces that tradition and looks to actors who um, are by necessity wanting to be large and life figures. And that's nice to see. Mm. We often see one or two actors pursue this approach in an individual film, but here there are a number pursuing that. And I like that. It's refreshing. It's natural. On that note, though, um, it's sad to once again see Denis Levant um, show up as just, oh, the kooky guy. He's an actor of extreme skill and yes. versatility. And these days, he as, as he's gotten older, it seems that all people can find a place for him to do is to be like the crazy guy who shows up and does says some wacky things. I keep seeing him as that, and it's a shame. But um, I didn't mind his role. 
I didn't either. I just wish that it's just, you know, I wish I, that's this isn't the kind of role I was always seeing Denis Levant do. We know he can play crazy, but he can do so much more, you know. But um, speaking a little bit of the things that brought this down um, for me, when I said before that basically the concept is what's holding it together, it's getting to know these, um, you know, what's going on, what, what are the dynamics of the prison, um, who are these interesting characters like, like Blackbeard, why does he want to do this Roman tradition? There's an intrigue in the concept and there's an, you know, that spills out into when once we start seeing the telling of the story and the, and the way that the characters all participate in that. Um, there's a tension early on, um, it, you know, seeing the character being put on the spot, forced to improvise, how is he going to get out of this one kind of aspect. Um, but once the novelty of that wears out, I don't think the film has enough substance to back itself. Um, I, I think the, the prison plot, uh, once you get past those novelties, is a pretty familiar prison movie. The characters aren't intriguing enough to go along with this level of minimalism. To me, it feels padded out. Um, and, and also visually, um, the, as you say, like for example, with the scene on the beach, there's some beautiful cinematography in the um, storytelling segments, uh, whereas the scenes inside the prison um, after a while start to feel very samey to me in the way that they're shot. And I get that that's by design clearly as Lacotte shows he's capable of a much freer style of composition and storytelling in, in, the, story, in the story aspects. Um, but the, the same approach being repeated over and over again in terms of how it's staged and blocked and filmed with the handheld um, starts to wear thin. I think there, were, there was room for a lot more variety because it's not, even, not a particularly new style um, I've been put in mind of uh, City of God by the opening bit of chasing the, the chicken. And then I, I, the whole way through the film, I was thinking, this is, you know, okay, I get like stylistically, I was searching for what it was reminding me of um, in, when I was thinking about this contrast with the cutaway story bits. And I thought, oh yeah, City of God. And then about two minutes later, the characters actually name check City of God. We get it. Like it was, it was already in my mind, you know, you, you shouldn't be that reliant on, on another fairly recent, fairly uh, widely seen film, I don't think. Okay, I think it's, more, I, I think there is an issue here of some of the characters being underwritten. I don't yeah, think it's overly an issue because the, again, the performers are so, by and large, so enigmatic they make up for it. Um, there's a feeling of that you are drawn in with them. There's a feeling of intimacy rather than relation to the performers. I think that the the, the quality thereof um, elevates what otherwise is from a character perspective not a great show. We also don't know too much about Roman. The story he the Roman the story he tells us doesn't inform much about him. He's very much the blandish audience identification figure. I'm reminded a little bit, um, this is not me criticizing the Shawshank Redemption, I'm reminded a little bit of Andy Dufresne. There's a similar setup at the beginning where he's brought in, we're told he's committed a serious crime, but the tone is very much, he seems like a nice guy, are we on his side? Are we gonna learn something about this? Did he do it? Did he not in fact do it? Does it not matter? It's the same narrative setup. I think it works really well here. For me, the matter it, it of- It ends up not really mattering though, right? Yeah, it, it, and yes, which is the whole, again, the point of the short, well, I believe the point of the Shawshank Redemption, that's yeah, another yeah. debatable issue. Um, for me, where more so where, I, I, I think I diverge a bit. I think it's the, the issue with this is that there is the films, the, the premise itself, and the first, and I'd argue most of the second act, maintain a real sense of urgency because we are informed of the stakes. We know of the stakes. We know the story is going to take place 
over a finite period of time, but both as, so I think it's a matter of tension, both as the film gets more ethereal and therefore as a consequence we lose track of time, but also as it's never clear, both as regards his fate and others' fates, what the exact rules are, what exactly is the level of degree and immediacy of enforcement that with, with the lack of clarity over these aspects, we lose a sense of urgency at which which pithers out as the film moves on. I think the film, and I don't think it's a matter of um, length. I think the film was a decent length. I think the film really needs to maintain a that sense of tension in order to not just maintain the interest. I think it is an interesting film, but to maintain the impact that it otherwise evinced in the first act, I'd argue most of the second act. Well, this is what I was saying about how like it's all in the setup. It's, you know, the initial surprise of seeing he's in this situation, oh, he's going to improvise what happens next, um, is, is, as you say, really tense with a real sense of urgency. But beyond minor breaks to stage a little bit more action or whatever, there's not many more hiccups in it. There's not many more twists in terms of what is the character thinking? How's he going to find his way out of this one? There's a few, but you know where this is going by then. His character, like he, the plight of his character, isn't well written enough, even as just a blank audience identification figure, to really elevate your sense of what he's going through as the narrative progresses past that first act. And then we get into the issue I was talking about before, which is that the, the prison story, um, now that it's played its novelty cards, is pretty familiar. Um, and the stories he's telling aren't that interesting, right? But I think visually, uh, there's some pleasure to be had from them. Um, and they're, they're kind of intriguing in, in their ethereal contrast to the prison scenes. But uh, um, there isn't the sense of magic um, that there needed to be. You know, I think he's tried to bring that out through the contrast and the beauty of some of the, these wide shots. But it's just not quite there enough to convey the power of storytelling to the extent that this film is relying on those scenes. Um, and then, the, the, you know, so I feel like neither in both, you know, um, no complaints visually about the, the uh, storytelling aspects, but the stories grow thin, the prison story grows thin, and the prison visuals grow thin. And I was ready for the movie to end when it did. All right, I, I diverge again. I, and I look to examples of texts that have done story within a story really well. So like Eternal Animals, I know there's a lot of split opinion on this. I liked that film a lot. Um, a lot of Roald Dahl stories, the wonderful story of Henny Sugar is an example where there's a story within a story, but they work because narratively, thematically, they complement each other. By virtue of the form, they, they, this could have happened here, by virtue of the form, we're dealing with a nervous figure who is just looking to recount stories for um, necessity. So I understand that he may just pull out whatever he can, and it may not be of intrinsic immediate relevance, but I think if it had been uh, more focused from a screenwriting perspective, and again, there's an issue where character comes in, it could have been that much better. I liked the story within the story. I liked the main story. I don't think they really complement each other as much as this film either could have aimed for, or as much as I think the screenwriters thought it otherwise did. I know they try to tie it neatly together at the ending, but that sort of um, thematic resonance. It would have elevated That it. would have been better if it had been a just in, consistent throughout um, the first and second acts. That's what this film needed. It wasn't a point for twists. It was a point for clarity much earlier on. Was the character that he tells the story about called Zama King? Was that the name? Yeah, Zama King. Okay, so there's a moment when Blackbeard asks his dubbed Roman, um, why are you telling 
the story of Zama King and he says, oh, I don't know, it just came to me. And then the Blackbeard says, hmm, I thought there was a reason. And uh, it's an interesting point that you think is going to pay off in what it reveals about Rahman. Uh, you know, I understand wanting him to be blank as an audience identification figure, but the teasing depths about him to be revealed. So when it turns out there's nothing, you know, it's, it's like a, a loaded moment that really should have been left on the cutting room floor, unfortunately, because it sets you up for disappointment. There's just this feeling of there are points where the confrontations between the characters reach a height and it happens too early and then there's nowhere for it to go later because yeah. it drops and then can't quite rise to that level again. I um, think the script is just not quite ready. Like for me, the movie runs out of steam about an hour in and it's 90 minutes. Like a lot of festival films, it feels like a really long short film. This, this you know, is, is not the most egregious in, in that respect, but like it could have been 75 minutes and probably been tighter for it, or it needed some more depth to the characters um, and some more twists, some more interesting dynamics in the prison scenes or some uh, something beyond being merely an audience identification figure from Roman. So that is Night of the Kings. It is screening now on Myth Play, um, as is Days, Wife of a Spy, Writers of Justice and Hopper Wells. Got that right this time. Yeah. We'll be back next week with more Melbourne International Films. Um, the Indian Film Festival of Melbourne and the West End Film Festival is screening online now. Harmonic is next Wednesday. You can find details of all that and more up on festivez.com. Have a wonderful night. Stay safe. Um, yeah, there's a lot of, lot of good myth stuff. I think I'm going to watch Sun Children and Dear Comrades next. Yeah, we're going to try and blitz through what we can. Uh, I, I don't know that there's yeah, going to be so many good films. Dear Comrades mm -hmm. is very good. So I've heard I'm, that I'm for a long try time. To, try to hold out and I'm going to try to watch it for the weekend. Yeah, so nice. I write the justice and Dear Comrades to my already long list and see if I can finish it by the weekend. <laughs> I want to watch Night and Ballad of a White Cow. There's a few Iranian films. Really the Ballad of a White Cow is one of the first to sell out, unfortunately. Oh, it's sold out. Sold out early. Oh, no. Oh, you see, yeah, you've got to be... I know it's a, it's a digital festival, guys. Like, I know they've got limited distribution, but uh, that's annoying. It's, it's oh, online. Right. You can release more seats. It's you can. I think it's just part of their licensing deal of, you know, we'll give it to you for this rate if you only let this many people watch it or something like that. It's probably like that. Fair um, enough. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's like we want to show it at other festivals. This is Australia wide, so we don't want to allow too many people to watch it now. Makes sense. And also, but, uh, look, it's look, a shame. For the pivot to online, as the media is that it, for the availability they have, bravo. Like, and like no, such no. a solid selection. Like, I, I kind of had a bias going in of, oh, it's the streaming festival. It's going to be kind of the also runs that the distributors don't care about. Not so. It's an excellent selection and it, it has films that would have been, because a lot of them were, or all of them, I think, were also showing as part of the physical festival. Some of the highlights of the fest are in this selection. You know, it's really good, guys. Uh, check it out while it's still out there. Yeah, I'm really, really impressed. This has just been nice. I've been watching one a day. Just put it on at night, like a real experience. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of folks yeah, online. I'll, I'll, have, to, I'll have to up my game. It'll have to be three a day. Yeah, I've, I've watched like three and two the last couple of days. I've had to speed it up because you realize, damn, like time is running out and there's some really good movies here. Yeah, until Sunday. So yeah, yeah, uh, yeah we're, we're gonna do we're gonna do more. And I'm sure a lot of these, at least some of these will play at other festivals, will play on streaming, will play on, in cinema. Certainly Writers of Justice is but, no question that's gonna get like a three month long at least cinema release. But you know, a lot of them I think will be hard to find. 
you know, film festivals draw your attention to movies that yeah. um, you can't find might not days. Be you, you, you not find days. You uh, might only days. be able to like buy it on iTunes or something or Apple TV, whatever they call it now in the future. You know, this draws your attention to it. Even though it's an online festival, it's still serving the purpose that film festivals do in getting you watching an interesting survey of the art cinema being made in the world right now. Um, so highest recommendation as far as streaming festivals go or any, you know, since beggars can't be choosers, any festival experience for a Sydney person uh, goes to Miff Play. My only critique, and it's one I, um, a friend in Melbourne has echoed as have the rest of us on Film Pie Club, why is there not a 10 pack? You know, when you're charging Fun people, pack. yeah, when you're charging people $14 a film, and you're not running a, a physical festival, there should be a 10, 20, 30 flexi pass. Yeah, I would have bought it. Yeah, bought it. absolutely. Considering that I've already purchased 10 films, yeah, that was a 10 back for me right there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm saying for next year. Please do that, Miff. Please do that. Myth, we love you, but love, yeah, you're doing, save you're us doing some dollars. Well. I know you, I know, you know, like, I know, I know you need money, but uh, honestly, like, I'd, I'll donate to Miff. Yeah, but like, we have been, we, we would be there. We would be in Melbourne right now. Let's be very Oh, yeah. I was looking forward to it because I missed the last myth um, and uh, I vowed not to do that again. But yeah, who knows when the next myth will be? Hopefully next year. We'll see. Well, they've pivoted to online real quick. So uh, looks like they're in a good state, new per normal. For yeah. uh, the time being. Sydney, I hope you're listening. November. Yeah. While we're still here talking about MIF, can I just say losing the whole MIF festival is a real loss because MIF, like I said before, is kind of like a survey of everything being done in art cinema worldwide because it's so huge. Seriously, yeah. every there are some emissions, of course, as there always will be, but almost every major film of the past 12 months since the previous MIF that hasn't already gone into theatrical release um, outside of mainstream film, um, you know, those sorts of films are better served by the national festival, uh, national cinema festivals that the Palace Group do. But basically every notable art film is at MIF. It's such an extraordinary festival. And a lot of those films feature a better use of visual language than the much higher budget Hollywood product that is filling cinema screens. So it's a real shame that so many of these movies are never going to show in actual cinemas. You know, um, I really hope MIF can come back in in 2022. Agreed. We look, we look forward to seeing you. We look forward to being in Melbourne. However, at the moment, we will look we look forward to watching it on our screens at night. Have a lovely day, night, and yeah, enjoy the rest of the festival. <laughs> yeah, enjoy the festival and check out West End and IFFM. Good night. <laughs>